Hello everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show. In conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit and the Podbreed network, my name is Rob and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Longest Night GOT. That is at Longest Night GOT if you'd like to come and chat with us away from our episodes. And you can also find us on Etsy under the same name where we have some pin badges available for about £1.69, which is about $2.50 in, in a American money. Um, our title music was written, performed and provided by Edward Thomas. And you can find all of his work via the link in the description, which will just take you to his Bandcamp page. Uh, right, okay. Time to discuss Hard Home. As I said, this week we are going to be discussing Season 5, Episode 8 of Game of Thrones, entitled Hard Home. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by Miguel Sapochnik, just as it was last week. And it was first broadcast on the 31st of May 2015 to an audience of 7.01 million people, which is a ginormous leap from uh, The Gift last week, the pesky yeah, yeah. Memorial Day. Ooh. <laughs> Um, Lizzie, what are your thoughts about Hard Home? Because we watched this episode together, and I guess you've watched yeah, it did, once yeah. since. Uh, so, yeah. h- how are we feeling after a couple of times through? I thought it was a very good episode overall. I've, been, like, in particular, I found that it had a good balance between the, you know, the more intimate, quiet moments, and also the, you know, the big intense action scenes at Hard Home itself. And I feel like as much as I've complained about the slower pace of season five, I do feel like this episode managed to make those conversational scenes meaningful in a way that I haven't necessarily sensed from previous scenes of similar nature. So each of those conversational scenes felt meaningful and at least hinted at the next steps in their respective storylines, which I feel is an improvement over some more recent offerings. Yeah, this... um First of all, like, I love this episode. It's one of my perfect 12. I think this episode yeah. is outrageous. I think it's one of my top five. It could be in my top three, um, but it maybe just misses out. But even, like, before the last 30 minutes, like, with Hard Home and stuff, there's still, as you say, Tyrion's amazing scene with Daenerys, Sansa and Theon's great scene at Winterfell. The scenes with Cersei and King's Landing are quite short, but they're really impactful. And even Arya's stuff is interesting this week. Yeah, um, yeah. Which says a lot about the episode. I think that... Then, and then you do get the stuff at Hard Home, which is already tense, but then it goes up by several notches, delivers one of the best sequences I think we've had in the entire run so far, totally shifts the focus of the show in one fell swoop. It's the first time we see the White Walkers properly in action, makes all the squabbling in the Seven Kingdoms seem really silly and insignificant. It really does, yeah. Um, and I think, though, what really ties it together for me is that it's an episode that's very much about how death has brought all of these various characters to the situations that they're in. Like, Cersei is in there for Robert's murder, amongst other things. Um, Sansa and Theon have got, like, tragic shared history in the whole murder department. Um, Arya is learning how to kill more efficiently uh, at the moment. Tyrion and Daenerys are two terrible children of two terrible fathers who caused and wreaked a lot of death in their time, and they're only there because of death. 
And I think the the lesson really at the end of the episode is that when you stare death in the face, as John literally does at the end of the episode, it's instead of getting involved, it's better to be on a boat drifting away than it is Absolutely, to try and yeah. get involved. And yeah, I think um, this is one of... I do think there are some episodes of Game of Thrones where I don't feel like I'm overselling it to call it a bit of a masterpiece um, of 21st century TV. And I think that this is one of theirs. I think that, like you say, there is a real balance, a real effective balance between quieter stuff that's still really emotionally impactful and the action sequences that really take the game of... They really take the game up a notch with regards to Game of Thrones trying to expand and become bigger and to deliver the kinds of set pieces that justify the kind of audience it's got now yeah. at this stage. Yeah. The trial will take place soon. The High Sparrow will be presenting a substantial case against you. The charges? Fornication, treason, incest, the murder of King Robert. All lies. Of course, Your Grace. My concern is that the faith does not adhere to the same standards of proof as the crown. I hope you'll excuse me for saying it, but belief is so often the death of reason. I wish you'd said it sooner. In King's Landing, Cersei remains in her cell under arrest by the Faith Militant, and Scepter Unella continues with the effort to try and force Cersei to confess her crimes, but she continues to refuse. Kyburn uh, visits Cersei and informs her of the nature of the charges against her, and says that Tommen has grown reclusive and isolated after Cersei and Marjorie's arrests. Uh, before leaving, he lets her know that there is a way out, and that the work continues. Lizzie, I want to ask what you think the work continues refers to. It has to be the mountain, surely. Uh, yes, yes, it, it is yeah. the mountain. The, the work is continuing. Well, yeah, we, I mean, we've already seen it in action. So, yeah, it's, I guess it's not much of a spoiler to actually say it. But, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see that nonetheless. I'm quite curious to see what you make of the work that Kyvern is doing on the yeah. mountain. Um, speaking of someone who's towering over people, uh, Septarunella um, is at her imperious best in these scenes, these sort of like these wordless, um, you know, like it was a few weeks ago when Tyrion was sort of saying to um, Jorah, long sullen silences and an occasional punch in the face. The Mormont way. This is a bit yeah. like long sullen silences and a ladle to the forehead. The Septarunella way. <laughs> um, I think that she's at her near silent best in this episode. Um, she has this amazing presence, and I think the way that they've dressed her up in the nun's outfit, where it's just a face that's visible, but like it's there's barely anything human about her. It just all seems to have been withered away. It's like, what life does she have outside of the uh, of the faith mm, doesn't seem like much it seems like this no, is no. what she does when she wakes up through the day and then goes to bed um, I think her um, constant opening and closing of the door is something that does make me laugh The uh, just the, the noise of the door once you hear it and once you're aware of it you can't really get it out of your head just the yeah and then it opens and closes <laughs> at several intervals during the episode um, but of course I think the um the real, the real star of these scenes is definitely um, Lena Headey again. Um, yeah, for sure. I just think that like she's not given much room in this episode. She's constantly opposite somebody else. She's in a very tiny room, and yet 
there are so many moments that are so perfectly well played. Um, the just things like um, her drinking water off the floor. It's like this idea that we're finally get. I think you know last week when it was the High Sparrow saying like we'll strip away your finery and see what's there. I think a lot of us expected it to be um, a metaphor for sort of like stripping Cersei's um, glory and gold away and then you find crime underneath. But really what's happened is that they've, they've taken all of her clothes away and like her hair, like her pretty hair, and like it's, it's now looking a bit shaggy and unwashed and stuff. And really what we have is the woman who has... A, it's a woman who has always been very childlike in some ways and very yeah. insecure and has been very beaten down and that is a woman who was taught that violence is the only way and that it's now all come home to roost a little bit and when she's drinking water off the floor it's like this is this is a low like this is a big low point for, for Cersei oh yeah definitely and just you know, just the like how she looks visibly. We've we've only ever really seen her just like majestically sort of dressed up with that perfect flowing golden hair. And now we uh, like they don't give us any sense of time, but she looks like she's been in there for years. Mm. Yeah, with the dry lips and like the just again, just this lack of. I mean, I don't know really if makeup is a thing in Westeros, but yeah, it's just this idea that like they're clearly depriving her of basic stuff. It's not even luxuries that she's being deprived of. It's gone beyond that, where they've taken all the all the luxuries that she's normally afforded, they've taken those away, and then they've taken away basic necessities like water, food, like, and the only yeah. way that she can get water is if she confesses to crimes that there's been no trial yet i mean obviously we know that she's guilty of all this but like the face don't really know and who who made them judge jury and executioner yeah exactly yeah and i did and when we were watching it together uh we we both laughed at kyburn's best um like he reads out all the charges he says you know the murder of fornication the murder of king robert uh incest all of this and then cersei goes all lies and then kyburn goes of course, you guys. Of course. Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Which, um, a true ally. Yeah, I, I think that Kyburn has now found his role in the show um, where he's been on the fringes for a little while, but now I think that the the cast... This is something I noticed at the start of the season and now it's really happening. I think it was something that we talked about with the small council where the names on the small council in season four were like Tywin, Tyrion for, you know, before the whole stuff with Joffrey. Uh, I suppose yeah. Joffrey as well. Uh, Prince Oberyn, Varys, Pycelle. Like, you know, a good kind of... Uh, Cersei was always involved. and like, It's a good kind of cast of names there that have been around for a long time. Whereas yeah, yeah. now the small council is like, just sort of... It just seems at the moment like it's just Kevin Lannister and Maester Pycelle sat in a room <laughs> opposite oh, each other God. at the big table. And it's this idea that it all grows like, you know, um, Kevin's come back, but Tommen has... It's basically disappeared into his bedroom. There's no yeah. word from Jamie. Varys and Tyrion are on the other side of the world now, and it just feels a little bit like season 11 of some show that no one watches anymore. All of the original cast have gone, yeah. and it does feel awfully empty in a good way. I feel like it all feels awfully isolated and quiet 
in King's Landing at the moment. It just feels like there's not a lot happening. And I think it's basically because everything's kind of ground to a bit of a standstill because the faith have got such a stranglehold on the city where the, the King's Landing was always... It was never happy particularly, but the, the King's Landing was the centre of the story between like seasons two, three. Uh, I basically, all of the show up to this point has been in King's Landing, especially since yeah. Tyrion turned up in season two, but even before then with Ned in King's Landing um, in season one. And it doesn't feel like the centre of the story anymore. No, you're right, yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure where the centre of the story is right now. You could argue that maybe the events at Hardhome this week have really you know they've really dragged it to the center of the the focus but i think maybe that's been the issue with season five so far is that there has been no central plot line to this there's been no place that we're always eager to get back to it's just that the story has grown so large and there's so many people in so many different places that there isn't a particular place in every single episode where it's like, oh, I need to get back and see what Tyrion's doing in King's Landing or like, oh, Tyrion's been arrested or in season three where it was like, oh, I wonder what Tyrion's doing or in season two where it was like, oh, I wonder what Tyrion's doing and it feels like that's all disappeared in the wake of Tywin being killed. Absolutely, um, yeah. In, in good and bad ways for the show, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Echo tells a man that she has seen If the captain dies, Thin Man pays his family a lot of money. But perhaps the gambler loses his bet and decides he does not have to pay after all. A destitute woman and her small child. What can they do to such a man if he keeps their money for himself? To whom can they turn for recourse? The many-faced god. In Bravos. Aya assumes the identity of Lana, who is an oyster seller. Uh, when selling oysters down by the harbour, she encounters an insurance salesman, whom Jack and Hagar identifies as her first target. And while observing him, she notices that the insurance salesman is dishonest and doesn't pay the debts that he owes. And Jacken gives her a vial of poison and refers to it as a gift for the insurance salesman. It's a shame this wasn't last week, because that would have fit nicely with the gift theme. And the yeah. waif, afterwards, the waif privately expresses doubts that Arya is not yet ready. I think that it's a sign of how good this episode is, that even the Arya stuff is great this week. I love a voiceover slash montage uh, combination. I think there's yeah. a lot of really tight editing in this sequence where um, she breaks the oyster open while he puts the coins down. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. There's loads of little things like that that just make it way more interesting because in the end, all we've seen is Arya walking down to a harbour, watching a guy not give money to a guy or insure him for his voyage. But they make it so exciting. They just they make it so gripping and they make it so interesting. Even if what's happening on screen or at least happening in the story isn't so exciting, you can't take your eyes off it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. love that. I really love that. Talk, talk to me. Talk to me more. <laughs> Well, first of all, I've got in big letters here, oysters, crabs and cockles. <laughs> I thought I'd uh, go for the, you know, the cheap, the cheap lines there. But yeah, it's, yeah it, it's, I, it's a good laugh. It's a good laugh. It is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, there's so much more to get into from just this one small scene in Bravos than what we've had in recent weeks at the House of Black and White, in my opinion, anyway. I think there's only so much you can glean from watching Arya scrubbing the floors and 
arguing with the waif, but mm. it's like seeing Arya assume the role of Lana is it's a really interesting new development. It's got like endless opportunities for Arya to go on adventures beyond the house, and like I think it also helps that the the environment is it's kind of vibrant and buzzing. There's there's people around. It feels like we're back to civilization. It's, it's easy to forget that this is just kind of a couple of miles away from where we are at the house, where there's no windows, there's barely any sunlight. And that this, that this this whole vibrant city just outside those imposing walls, it's great. Yeah, it feels like maybe where we should have been about four episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, well, we've not seen Bravos proper since the start of season five, which just feels like a bit of a waste of this interesting new city that we haven't really had much of a chance to explore Mm. but this week when you're back out there it's like oh yeah like this feels good like you know and it does yeah yeah going forwards as well it is more like this you do see i'm trying to think of scenes after this that actually take place in bravos in the house of black and white and most of them take place outdoors or at least good. a good portion of them do anyway. It isn't just Aya sweeping floors anymore. Like we've we've gone past that point now. We're, we're past the video game element of this, where it feels like they've started to tell an actual story again. And there's even a little indication in this where the waif saying she's not ready is yeah. a bit of a it's a bit of a moment in itself that's laced with irony because with the waif trying to argue that Aya's not ready. It means that she's taken a personal dislike to Arya. Which yeah, means yeah. that the waif isn't ready because you have to let go of personal biases. Jacken You're is right, very, yeah. maybe she is ready. Maybe she's not ready. Who knows? We'll find out. Whereas the waif is like, the waif clearly has something out for Arya here. And it's like, well, you've been here longer and you're still struggling with this. So give Arya a break. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean, it could be like, it could be jealousy, it could just be, I don't know, it could be anything really, but you're right in that she's been there a lot longer and it's obviously, you know, she's not in a position to do what Arya's doing. So maybe that suggests that Arya is more ready than she thinks. Turned on Rob. Captured Winterfell. Killed those boys. They weren't those boys. They were Bran and Rickon. They were your brothers. You've known them since they were born. They weren't. They were lonely. Only what? I can't. Tell me. I can't. Not unless the master said. Tell me. They weren't what? They weren't. Tell me why Bran and Rickon should be gone while you still breathe the air. Tell me to my face, Theon. Tell me that they weren't your brothers. They weren't Bran and Rickon. I couldn't find them. At Winterfell this week, when Theon delivers food to Sansa's chambers, she asks him why he gave the candle to Ramsay last week instead of lighting it in the Broken Tower. And Theon explains that he was doing it to help Sansa because there's no escape. When Sansa confronts Theon further, she grows colder towards him and asks him why Bran and Rickon should be dead while he still breathes the air. And this argument causes Theon to admit that he, he didn't kill Bran and Rickon when he invaded Winterfell those years ago. He killed two farm boys instead and burned them so that nobody would know Bran and Rickon had escaped. Uh, while preparing for Stannis' coming invasion, Ramsay says that they should take the fight to Stannis and asks Roose for 20 good men. 
Um, so we'll get that thing out of the way very quickly. Um, Ramsey's 20 good men is a bit of a point of contention in the fan base. We'll talk about that more in future episodes. Um, All right, okay. It's uh, it's the it's Game of Thrones dragging something up from the first season where Bronn says, give me 10 good men and some climbing spikes. I'll impregnate the bitch, which is what he says when him and Tyrion arrive at the Eyrie for the first time. And it's this oh, idea, yeah, yeah. I think, that kind of comes through it with this idea of honest fighting and dishonest fighting and what's the more effective method and that sort of thing. Um, this is the weakest scene in the episode, but it's so short that I don't care. Um, and it yeah. actually has implications for future episodes. So, you know, well, you know, it, it raises its mark up a little bit in my eyes. But the stuff with Sansa and Theon this week, oh boy. Um, it's good, isn't it? Oh, it's so it's superb. It's like it reaches back three seasons and just yanks my heart out with it. It's the best Sansa scene all season. Loads of emotion and power. Really good from Sophie Turner and Alfie Allen. Um, Theon's secret is finally out. It's the one thing that he could never admit and it's been a deep source of embarrassment and shame for him. And... Sansa's managed to bring something out of Reek that he's remembering who Theon was and who Theon is. And I think even, it might be unintentional, but there is a clear contrast here between Theon and Cersei where they're both asked to confess things this week and Theon's the one that makes the choice to do so and Cersei is trying to find alternative methods of getting what she wants without having to admit anything. And... I just think, yeah, it's superb. It's really, really good. The moment where he says they weren't Bran and Rickon and there's just this sight, this silence and their yeah. faces are silhouetted yeah. against the window. There's this empty space between them where like you can sort of, if it was cold enough, you could see them both breathing onto each other. Yeah. Just this like sudden, what? Like, oh my God. And obviously we've all known this for ages, but Sansa in the space of two weeks has found out that John's Lord Commander at Castle Black and that Bran and Rickon are still alive. <laughs> So it's like, things are looking up. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, she's still in a horrible situation, but mm. that that revelation, it's like it sucks all the air out of the room with mm. it. But, but yeah, um, I mean, I don't know if if um, Theon necessarily chose to um, come clean about it or if he was just put on the spot. Yeah, I think it's more of the latter, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it kind of, it's going back to the same pressure that you know, Ramsey gave him where it's just, you know, you prod him enough and eventually he will speak. Yeah, I think that's something that Sansa's been sort of aware of for a couple of weeks now and this method of saying, good, I'm glad that Ramsey tortured you because you're fucking horrible and you, you, it resulted in all of my family being murdered. So thanks very much, Theon. Um, it, mm. I think growing colder to him and more dispassionate and because last week she tried to appeal to his empathy and it didn't work and so this week she's just gone for the jugular and it's paid off a lot better for her i think where there's a little window that maybe theon isn't dead maybe reek isn't totally dominant now maybe there's you know there's a chance possibly that you know her and theon could maybe find each other a little better they could find each other somehow through this like you know yeah and yeah they could form they could get the wedge out of the way that ramsey's put between them and yeah it's it's huge i just i think again i love the fact that death really means something in this show where two deaths three seasons ago are still having a huge impact on the story and the fact that it, the show has kept it a secret for so long from so many characters that when it just gets blurted out in the middle of a scene like this, it's like, oh, God, yeah. And it makes you realise how long the 
the story's gone on for and how much has happened in that time and especially what's happened to Theon uh, in that time yeah, and absolutely, who yeah. he was then and you think about where Sansa was at that time in season two because that's the same episode of the uh, the riot in uh, it's the same episode as the riot in King's Landing and yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the same episode where um, oh, it's the same couple of episodes where there's the riot in King's Landing and the um, Jamie breaking out of his prison cell in the Riverlands and it's like how long ago was this and just to yank it out of season two and drop it into the end of season five is uh it's a bold move and i think it really really pays off uh, i think that this is where taking sansa back to winterfell really starts to pay off and absolutely because it gives reek theon it gives something for him it, it gives him something and it it's up to it's now sansa knows that she has a job now which is like beyond just sort of being Ramsay's beaten wife she now has a bit of a responsibility to look after Theon and maybe she realises that she's the opposing force in Theon's head where he's so beaten down and withered by Ramsay that now she feels like she could be the angel on the shoulder instead and yeah of course yeah, yeah. it's so goddamn effective they're so good in that scene uh, I think other than the stuff at Hardhome this is probably the best stuff in the episode um I think it's the most emotionally effective one. I was just watching it on YouTube the other day before the episode even started because I knew it was coming and I'm just sort of sitting there going, oh, oh God, this scene. And so when I was um, sat there with you and when obviously we watched it with Ed as well, who provides our title music, it's just like, yeah. it's a moment where the whole room goes really quiet and, ah, oh, yeah, it's it's so great. It's so, so good. I love this episode. This episode's amazing. And it gets even better it's from great. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stannis Baratheon won't back you either. His entire claim to the throne rests on the illegitimacy of yours. That leaves the Tyrells. Not impossible. Not enough. Lannister, Targaryen, Baratheon, Stark, Tyrell. They're all just spokes on a wheel. This one's on top, then that one's on top, and on and on it spins, crushing those on the ground. It's a beautiful dream. Stopping the wheel. You're not the first person who's ever dreamt it. I'm not going to stop the wheel. I'm going to break the wheel. In Meereen, Tyrion and Jorah meet with Daenerys and Missandei. The result of their conversation is that Tyrion's life is spared and is considered by Daenerys to join her small council, while Jorah is once again banished from the city. Jorah returns to the fighting pits in one last attempt to win Daenerys' favour, and later on, Tyrion talks with Daenerys about her future and her intentions, and she decides that Tyrion will serve as her advisor after all, and she tells him that she intends to travel to Westeros and break the wheel of ruling families there. What do you make of the stuff in Marine, Lizzie? It's good. Um, it's kind of more the, the slower side of the episode, but again, it feels, um, it feels substantial. Yeah. And... I'd say there's a there's a couple of points in this particular episode where they use silence really well, like um, you know the opening scene of Marine in particular. Yeah, you get that sense of distance between Daenerys and Jorah and Tyrion. Mm. Like even though we know that they have a lot of similar aims and beliefs, there's not a lot of warmth or even trust between the two. And and then later on, obviously you know Daenerys she. She's still sort of believably on the fence about what to do with Tyrion. It's like, you know, should I spare you? Should I kill you? Are you any good to me? Or are you just going to stab me in the back? Mm. 
It's really good. And I think Daenerys as well, when I was talking about, you know, staring death in the face and choosing to maybe drift away from it and walk away from it. In this episode, Daenerys actually has the option to kill two people and decides against it. And I think it it benefits her where yeah. she welcomes somebody into her service instead. Um, I think there's some really good quick thinking again from Tyrion referring to himself as the greatest Lannister killer of all time. Um, the uh, it's, it's When Daenerys asks um, if you're worthy of my service and then Tyrion's like, uh, hang on, welcomed into your yeah. service, are you worthy of mine? Um, I think that, and also he sort of makes this little maneuver where he maneuvers Jorah out of the way, where it's like, listen, I know we're kind of friends, but you still hit me a lot on that boat, and yeah. I'm in it for myself here a little bit. And yeah, of course. So, mm, sorry, Jorah, necessary sacrifice. Um, poor old Jorah. I think that what really seals it this week, though, is not only the gorgeous set designs. Um, just absolutely glorious stuff, um, especially with Tyrion and Danny's conversation later. But Tyrion and Danny's conversation in this episode is just like, it's just an unbelievable scene. It's just like watching two great actors, two great characters, properly on screen together for the first time, sitting down, getting to know each other, really good back and forth. It's like this really good, intimate, private conversation where they explore a lot in a very short space of time without it feeling rushed um there are loads of great lines from both characters um well the I, i'd like you to advise me why you can still speak in complete sentences um and she yeah. takes the wine off him and Tyrion saying like you know I'll, one day when we've got time i'll tell you i'll sit down and tell you why i killed my dad um and then it ends on this amazing note with daenerys where after sort of maybe choosing to turn away from the face of death um she sort of says, listen, like, I'm not staying in Marine Tyrion. Like, I could stay away from Westeros, but it's not my intention. And it's not what I want to do. My intention is to just crush the existing hierarchies in Westeros. <laughs> yeah, of course. Break That's the, the wheel. long-term goal, yeah. And I just think that it's an amazing scene that ends with Danny's mission statement. Um, I think that it makes a really good point this scene of saying that these two children are formed by death, abuse, escape, slavery. Um, they're very alike with each other. And I think there are certain moments where Daenerys relaxes. There's the moment where like she leans back in her chair and starts talking to him. It's just before she stands up to do her whole break the wheel, um, break the wheel speech. Um, this yeah. is part of the overall focus switch that I think the episode plays a part in where after five or six episodes of kind of hanging around in the aftermath of season four and kind of trying to make sure that everything comes back together, this episode is where it feels... Last week was a good push in this direction, but this episode feels like it's just laser-focused everything all of a sudden, where now the seasons ahead feel like they have a, a clear destination in mind after this episode. And... I just think that this is one of the more powerful scenes in the episode and it's one of Daenerys's more famous lines the break the wheel this kind of sums her up from this point where it's like this is what she wants to do and this is what yeah. she intends yeah. to do and it feels like Daenerys's story has solid direction at, at this point where it it feels like we've for a couple of seasons like she's been in marine now and it's like okay you know 15 episodes where are we going next 
this feels mm-hmm. like there's now that Tyrion's turned up, everything's sort of sped up all of a sudden. It's like, oh yeah, we, you know, we, Daenerys is still intending to take the Iron Throne. It was Viserys's mission all along, and it just, yeah, I just think it's an amazing scene with some gorgeous set designs, great dialogue. Uh, I could watch it all day, every day. <laughs> Okay, so we come to our last location of the episode. Um, Lizzie, I just want to say well done for soldiering through this. Uh, I mean, I'm not feeling so hot this week, but you're definitely not feeling so hot in this episode. So It's, it's one of those weeks, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we got through it, though. We, we got through it, though. We're, we're, we're right at the end. Um, yes. Yeah. So at Castle Black in a short scene, Ollie visits Sam and Gilly and asks whether John is trying to trick the wildlings by allowing them south of the wall. And Sam tries to comfort Ollie by saying that the wildlings need to be south of the wall when winter comes. And then we head to Hardhome, where John and Tormund are greeted by the Lord of Bones, who argues with Tormund and mocks him, causing Tormund to strike out and kill him. John and Tormund then gather with the wildling elders and explain that in order to rescue them from the army of the dead, they will allow wildlings south of the wall. Uh, roughly half of the wildlings at Hardhome agree to travel south and are gradually loaded onto the ships. During the rescue effort, however, the army of the dead attacks. Hundreds, if not thousands, of wildlings are killed in the massacre, and the members of the Night's Watch that John has taken with him attempt to rescue as many people as they can, but they are soon overwhelmed. In the massacre, John does manage to kill a White Walker with his Valyrian steel sword Longclaw, but the fight is a losing one. John, Tormund, Ed, and the wildling giant Wunwun, uh, who we're introduced to in this episode, escape with their lives, but can only stand and watch as the Night King raises the dead and increases the size of his army. Um, Lizzie, how did you feel watching this for the first time? <laughs> the earlier scenes at the hut, they do their best to kind of lull you into this false sense of security. Like, like there's a, there's a threat on the horizon, but it's surely not going to be an issue in the immediate future. Mm. And then when the wildlings are being evacuated into the boats, there's that just that that sense of dread that just gradually builds like a lo- like a low hum that sort of gets louder and louder and louder until it's this like this rumble that you can't ignore anymore. And then you get the part, you know, the part where they close the gate. Yeah. And they're all sort of screaming on the other side. And then it just goes to silence. And this is what I mean about this this episode in particular, using silence as this kind of effective tool to kind of, you know, push the, the plot forward almost. Mm. But this in particular was quite chilling. Very. And then obviously you get the battle scene, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think that the best way to kind of describe my feelings about this is just to compare the shot of John that they open with of him stood at the front of the boat, sailing towards Hardhome in all of his gear and all of his Night's Watch finery, and then the shot of him sailing away, staring at what's just happened, his face battered to bits. 
his cloak gone, the dragon glass gone. He's still got his sword with him, but like he's lost several men and it's just like, oh my God. And it is just the, I think it is the biggest warning yet that all of the, all of the stuff that we've been paying attention to, all the squabbling, all of the fighting, all of the politics and stuff. And it's like, what does it really mean against that? Like, how can anybody, how can you stop that? I mean, okay, it was, you know, they were backed against the wall. They hadn't planned for it. They were destroyed. But like, what was implied at the end of season two, beginning of season three with the Night's Watch, um, we now see that in full action. And there's one moment of hope in this sequence that we'll talk about when we get there. But the rest of it is just total misery. And I think that they leave the music out for long enough and then when they bring it in and there's those really sad strings that come yeah, through yeah. while John's just staring at people getting hacked to death. And I think that what makes this so brilliant to me, though, is the way that it, it it's like classic Spielberg. And then at the beginning, and then it goes like full on horror where... It starts with that classic Spielberg technique of slowly revealing information to a large crowd where yeah. the dogs start barking in this and everybody gradually turns their heads and looks towards the cliff edge near the water. And it, it reminds me of uh, the scene in Jaws where he sat on yeah, the deck you're right. chair. Yeah. And yeah. this tragic, awful piece of information just slowly bleeds out from the the epicenter until it eventually reaches somebody and then it's all out chaos and in Jaws they represent it where they, they zoom in as the dolly runs away and they have that strange effect of, his, of him sort of like disappearing and going like on the, on the you, everybody knows the shot and I'm thinking yeah. of his, um, his remake of War of the Worlds in 2006 or 2007 where Tom Cruise, Dakota Fanning, they're waiting for a ferry to get from um, a place that's been taken over by the alien tripods to a place that hasn't yet been taken over on this escape mission. And Tom Cruise turns around and he just stands there looking at something that we can't see yet. And slowly, everybody in the crowd turns around to look almost right into the camera. And then we get the switch and it turns around and it turns out that the tripods have come over the hill and what yeah. goes from like a patient evacuation as it is in hard home it suddenly becomes a mad scramble where people start like hacking at each other and pushing each other over and trying to desperately clamber away because they know that death is coming for them and death is waiting for them um i think that what it also does really well is that all of the factions and all of the tension and all of the bitterness between the wildlings and the night's watch just evaporates in seconds once the white walkers turn up where it's like oh we have a much bigger enemy now where laboda who is the one then that we see who is initially like i'm not joining a crow he'll slit your throats and throw you to the bottom of the sea as soon as you get on those boats as soon as the white walkers turn up he's like you and me then we're gonna go and get that dragon glass from that hut and he sort of you know he yeah. sacrifices himself and it's just, I think that as well with the White Walkers, because they don't talk, they're not that interesting as villains. Like, we don't really know what their motives are beyond just sort of like, want to destroy. And 
They're very yeah, they're they're very much like horror villains. Yeah, like, they're, they're classic horror villains, and so the show leans into that where it like it doesn't yeah. try to turn them into like complex figures with motives or like you know political, you know like um, the Night King is like I want to sit on the Iron Throne. Like there's there's no there's never going to be anything like that. They don't talk. No, they no. never talk. They thought about giving them a language at the start of the show, but then decided against it. The closest we've got is that White Walker in season two on horseback who points his spear up into the air and goes. Bah! like that but that's about as close as we get and so if it's just a one-dimensional being that's hell-bent on destruction how can you make them as scary as possible and so you give a load of discordant strings you have that amazing shot where john looks up to the cliff edges and there's just four or five of them dotted watching the whole yeah. time and it's like we're just overseeing this we have thousands of foot soldiers who will do our bidding for us and i love the way that they sort of explain how the the whites even got from the top of the cliff to the bottom of the cliff anyway in the first place where they just tumble over in thousands and thousands and they just pile up and then all of a sudden it's just like what the hell's going on and it, like this sudden jump scare where ed's like yeah. oh fuck and there's just nothing to be done it is a lot of people maybe just for shorthand refer to it as the battle at hard home but like it's a fucking massacre that this is it this is, is yeah. no battle. This is just a whitewash, no. and then you get at the end of it. Even we'll talk about my favorite moment of the whole episode in a second. But you get the bit right at the end where the Night King, after all of that, just when you think it couldn't get any worse, the Night King is just like, "Well, all these wildlings that you've seen die, they're mine now." <laughs> yeah. and he just raises his arms up, uh, gets embedded into meme history with that, um, and. Yeah, I just think it's one of my... I don't know if it's top five sequences. It probably is, actually. This is so high. This is up there so far with, like, the Red Wedding and uh, the Battle at Blackwater with the um, the wildfire explosion um, at the end of season two and Joffrey's death. Like, it's so high up there for me. I just think this is unbelievable, unbelievable TV. And I think this is where... Game of Thrones has redefined in many ways for me already by this point what television can do and what it's capable of from a, a storytelling perspective. This is when Game of Thrones starts to redefine what television can look like to me from a technical perspective. Yeah. And yeah. the storytelling really comes with it and I just find it amazing. I, do, I, do, I really do find it just totally unbelievable. Um, just... It's horror, it's action, it's tragedy, it's it's everything. Um, please, please take the microphone away from me. <laughs> no, no, go on. I, I, I like hearing you gush about things. We need more of that. Well, then I'll talk about my favourite scene from the episode and one of my favourite moments in the whole of Game of Thrones, which is when Jon's Valyrian steel sword, Longclaw, connects yes. with the White Walker's sword and it's doesn't so shatter. Yeah, you were saying like you loved the choice of noise that they went for. Yeah, I, I don't know how to... I can't really replicate It's like... Yeah, it's like metal kind of, bending. It's just... and then, Yeah. Yeah, and then they give each other that look, like, okay, now what? And then John just sort of takes the opportunity and, you know, he manages to, let's say, draw the trigger quickly mm. enough to take him out. I just think that... It's brilliant. The way that they set it up as well, where the White Walker involved commits the cardinal sin that all villains do, which is just not killing the hero when he has the chance. He has several opportunities to just drive it through Jon Snow's heart at several occasions, but 
because the, I, I feel like the White Walkers have got this special kind of you'll begin to maybe when you rewatch the scene you might think but like there are certain things with John and the White Walkers where like there's just the way that they look at him and the way that they behave around him and it's like they're mocking him and it's like they're teasing yeah. him and testing him and so all these opportunities that he has to kill him it's like um, in The Incredibles where Syndrome's like you almost caught me monologuing you almost have me monologuing you, you can't make me do that <laughs> and so it's with this this is like the White Walker monologuing silently by repeatedly throwing John to the floor and hitting him and smashing him and like and then you get a couple of occasions just before where the swords just to remind you that the swords clash and shatter whenever a white walker meets a, a real like a like a human sword it happens to Laboda and then it happens to John and so you're yeah. like oh god but then it makes the moment where the Valyrian steel sword connects just so awesome and it's like I love the build up and how it's like you were saying about silence there is just total silence while John is on the floor after he's tripped up and the White Walker's walking behind him and then it makes the sudden sing of metal when they clash even more impactful because it breaks out of the silence and then there's another moment of silence where John and that White well, you get a bit of emotion out of a White Walker where he's yeah, sort of, do, yeah. and it's like this moment where John's on his last and he has no idea whether this is going to work and he lifts the sword up and like it's almost in vain the way that he lifts it up he's like I've got to do something and then when it connects and you get that noise and then it's like the look at the two of them look at each other and it's like this is the first time in history that this has ever happened or at least in remembered history that this has ever happened, where the White yeah. Walkers have no idea that, that, that Valyrian Steel Swords are capable of this. John has no idea that Valyrian Steel Swords are capable of this. And people who've existed in Westeros for 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 years have no idea that this is the capability of the properties of Valyrian Steel. Because obviously this is something that was referenced about two or three episodes ago, where the Doom of Valyria, where Valyrian Steel was made, it took all of the manufacturing methods with it. And so yeah. there's this idea that like it was made by dragon fire, and so like it, it, it's this ice and fire thing again and it's like, you know, dragons against white walkers, like, you know, opposing forces of elements and things like that. But you just feel like, at, at me anyway, I feel like I'm witness to some major moment in Westerosi history here. And it's just this, when it's all over, it's just this quiet little thing. There's no music. It's just this desperate kind of like, John's not really doing anything heroic. It's all a bit last ditch, back against the wall. Survival instincts kick in, striking out, wafting his sword, whatever he can do. And then he just sort of lies there and doesn't get up until Ed comes and gets him. And it's like, I'm happy to just kind of lie down and die here, to be honest. And yeah, yeah, oh, I just find it. And yet it's so epic. It's just this, it's this epic moment that's like this quiet little thing that only two people know. And now and it just offers that little glimmer of hope where it's like not just Dragonglass that works against White Walkers, we've got Valyrian Steel as well. And it's the point in the show where I think that season one made it pretty clear that this was going to be about the civil war that broke out in the aftermath of Ned Stark. That's the, you know, the yeah. first part of the show. Whereas season eight of season five, episode eight of season five, so like the second act of the show, it really shifts the focus where it's like King's Landing's gone a bit quiet. And yeah. there's a lot of people looking north all of a sudden. They did this in the season three finale. 
and now they've reinforced it again where it's like all of a sudden people are looking north like Stannis is meaning to take the north and take the Iron Throne because he's the only one that's sort of like the White Walkers are a danger I'm in the fight against the White Walkers and all of a sudden yeah. it's just like ah there's just a little bit of a switch there and I I mean you saw me when um, on the sofa when John's Villarine Steel Sword connected and I was just like oh I it's did. fucking brilliant. I heard you as well. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it really is awesome. Um, but then, as with the, the sort of the sad note that the episode ends on, where like, I, I remember the first time I watched this, my dad was trying to talk to me while John was drifting away on that boat. And it's on, the only time since I've left school where i you know grown up a little bit, where I think I've actually been rude to my dad, where I, he was trying to talk to me. And instead of pausing the episode or something like that, I just put my finger up and I just went, nope, nope. <laughs> not talking yeah. to anyone right now I was frozen on the spot for several minutes afterwards which I didn't even feel after the Red Wedding like I mean I kind of knew the Red Wedding was coming because I'd been told about it uh, well, but yeah, this yeah. I didn't have a clue and I was just frozen in I was frozen in on the spot for a good two or three minutes afterwards and the tragic thing when John's drifting away I was like begging for the episode to end because I was it was just so torturous and it's like the reminder at the end of it which is that like death is still coming and oblivion is, yeah. is still coming and it's like just a hopeless 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 scene and I just find it magnificent and this is where Miguel Sapochnik basically signs himself up for big episodes of Game of Thrones in the future and to the point now where he is showrunner on the prequel series yeah, and it's where he puts himself in Game of Thrones folklore amongst fans. Um, it's really good. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add uh, to that. I'm sure you do. Oh God, I mean, it's so like oh, it's it's one of those things. Like, where do you start with it? Um, but yeah, it is that that thing of you know you know when the Night King sort of raises his arms at the end. It's like we can take out all of your men, and they will become our men just like that. And there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, so yeah, you just get that sense of when as they're sort of sailing away, it's like we we can leave this situation, but yeah, it's it's gonna come back eventually. It's it's a matter of when and not if. And I think the really heartbreaking bit is that this show does this excellent job of introducing us to a brand new character in twenty minutes, and she's like this yeah. cool, like she's really badass, like she says things. She, she's a woman and she says fuck. And it's like, um, yeah. <laughs> and she, she's a bit, she's a warrior and she's handy and she's capable. And then, then we watch her die and it's like, oh, that sucks. And then she gets risen again as a zombie. And it's like, that really sucks actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the thing is as well, I don't think it's a spoiler to say this. We never see her face again. She oh, just, she yeah. just joins the army. She's just another, any individuality is just gone. It's just a body. Yeah. with death running through it and more death coming to it and I love the fact that it just she just fades into the background we get that one painful moment of her rising again after getting to know her and oh, wow yeah um, and I know that like we've not talked about the scene at Castle Black this week where Sam utters the the words of anyone who is in a TV show and has no idea about the danger coming around the corner where he says, oh, don't worry, I've been worried about John for years. He always comes back. 
Oh god! And it's yeah. like when Sam says that, it's like, are you kidding me? It's like you have to get into really lateral thinking with it. Um, but yeah, just this. Even the scenes where they're just talking, I think they're really tense. Tormund and John becoming a bit of a duo there. Um, yeah, killing the Lord. Of I like Bones that they. And, um, you, you mentioned when we were watching this, they brought back the Lord of Bones just to kill him. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, uh, dragging him all the way back from season two. Uh, three seasons he's been out of the show, um, and and not not even in the battles. Well, they just they're having a conversation, and Tormund got a bit fed up, so he he just killed him. Of course he did, as uh, as Tormund is often want to do. Um, yeah, yeah. I just think that everything about this really sings. Um, it's just one of my favourite sequences of the show, which makes it one of my favourite television sequences. It's a moment I always rewatch. And always want to come back to and always look forward to on rewatches. And I always look forward to seeing how people are how people cope with it and how people are. Because it was a great moment where John was being pushed around that hut and you sort of sat forward in your chair ever so slightly and I was like, Yeah, it's gotta <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it did. It's true. Uh, and it's uh, it's a big indicator of the size that Game of Thrones can achieve now and what's to come with uh the technical aspects of the show um, and what it can pull off and what it decides to do. Absolutely. I mean, and I think you sort of, when we were watching this, you paused the episode just before, you know, the hard home stuff started. Yeah. We still had about half an hour to go and it it kind of, when you see that, you think, surely they're not going to do a half hour scene at hard home. They're, they're surely going to go back to King's Landing and, I don't know, get more of Cersei or more of Daenerys and Tyrion having that discussion but yeah they go the whole hog with it yeah um okay right okay so I want to ask you for your line of the episode okay uh my line of the episode is in Hardcome this week um Laboda says my ancestors would spit on me if I broke bread with a crow to which Carsey replies so would mine but fuck them they're dead yeah um, we hardly knew you, Wildling Carsey, but you were cool. You you, you, you were yeah, great. very much so. Yeah, and yeah. you gave us a great image of those ravaged children skeletons, um, where, again, it's just a moment of silence amid the chaos where it's like, fucking hell. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, all right, then, who is your loser this week? My loser of the week is the Night King, for obvious reasons. Yeah, um, I think it's his second appearance, and he's already on the loser of the week uh, list. So, yeah, I think... Yeah, and yeah. I'm sure there'll be more to come. Yes, yeah, we, we do see him again. Um, and who is your winner this week? This is a hard one. I'm torn between two names. I think a John or Carsey. Ooh. Um, yeah. Because... John's going to be in the show after this episode. Should we just name... I, I know, we'll share it. We'll, 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 we'll give out a shared award for the first time ever. Yeah, because like John had the, the moment of history and the, the heroism, but also Carsey died fighting for her daughter. And yeah. yeah, it kind of bums me out to think we'll never see her again. All right, then. Um, cool. All right, yeah, okay. I, I think a shared award is uh, is totally fine. Um, next week, we are going to be chatting about Season 5, Episode 9, which is entitled The Dance of Dragons. 
Um, hope you all enjoyed the episode this week. And I know that a few people have come to us uh, in the aftermath of Gretchen Felker Martin sharing the fact that we're going to be chatting with her in a couple of weeks. Um, thank you for listening to us. And we hope you stick around. Her interview is going to be out, as I said, in a couple of weeks. And beyond that point, um, you know, we have seasons six, seven, and eight to get through. And we hope that you stick with us for that. So thank you very much for coming with us on that um, on our journey. Uh, we hope that this episode was uh, satisfactory to you. A lot of people yeah. jumped on and listened to our episode The Gift last week. Um, it's one of our highest performing episodes ever in the first week, so thank you very much for that. Um, and if you're sticking with us, then cheers. And if not, then we enjoyed having you around for a couple of weeks. Maybe jump back in when things get more interesting for you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. See you. Hmm.